Welcome to the Common Round. Medical education for medical students by medical students. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And joining us today is our executive producer, Gautam. Today we will go through hemolytic anemias, isn't it, Hamid? Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be a really big topic and we'll, we'll break it into chunks so that everyone can understand what we're talking about. Yep. The first chunk would be just an overview of what hemolytic anemia is. And then the future episodes, we'll talk about thalassemia and sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm. But we'll cover all the basics here so yep. that everyone can then feel comfortable comfortable when we talk about the other diseases as well. So do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Maybe the first thing I want to say, like, let's say when you hear the term hemolytic anemia, so hemolysis, which means just, I think just the breakage or the destruction of a red blood cell, isn't it? So when we talk about hemolytic anemia, just think the red blood cell somehow dying. And from this point on, think about what causes the reason of the red blood cell to die. Yeah. So there's a special way in which hemolytic anemias are classified, right? And that's yeah. really crucial in understanding our future talks. Mm. So let's spend a bit of time to talking about the classification let's talk about the two different types so there's two classifications hereditary and acquired and there's a different approach to classifying hemolytic anemias Mm. do you want to maybe talk through the hereditary and acquired um, classification so one way to classify it once again is hereditary or acquired by now i think that should be i hammered into uh, your years by now the hereditary component can be classified into three further subtypes so we can either have an abnormal membrane we can have abnormal enzymes or abnormal hemoglobin synthesis so with these three components that can go wrong in a red blood cell it's not surprising to hear that the red blood cell will die mm. early and yeah. hemolyze first. Uh, Hamid, what, what, what's an example of some uh, abnormal membrane diseases? There's a couple, but the ones yeah. that we'll probably talk about um, focus a bit more time uh, yeah. soon would be a condition called spherocytosis. Okay. I won't describe what it is because we're going to dedicate yeah. a bit of time to it. And what about some, what are the key enzyme abnormalities? There's the, the two important ones that we need to know um, is pyruvate kinase deficiency yeah. and um, G6PD deficiency. And yeah. they're really important because, you know, especially G6PD because it's relatively common for us to yeah. be aware of that. And do you want to tell what hemoglobin abnorm- abnormalities yeah. are? So the hemoglobin abnormality would be thalassemia that we mainly think that's of. the big one yeah. That, yeah and another hemoglobin abnormality would wouldn't that be like sickle cell yeah, yeah. that's another type as well mm. so that's going to be that that in itself deserves a whole topic or a whole podcast yep. so we'll focus on that mm. in a later episode okay let's get all the easy ones out of the way and then mm. we'll prepare for the hard stuff so these were the hereditary conditions that can cause hemolytic yep. anemias whereas there are some that are acquired what, um, do, what do we mean by acquired I guess something that you weren't born with, but you got caught later in your life, isn't it? Yeah, that's my understanding. Once again, we break it down to either immune-mediated or non-immune-mediated, isn't it? Immune-mediated could be, let's say, an autoimmune hemolytic anemia, or let's say if you got transfused the wrong blood type, Mm. so it's a hemolytic transfusion reaction that can cause it. Whereas non-immune diseases can be such as uh, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, which we'll talk about once we get into the thrombosis. Yeah, so just keep that in the back of your mind, because that is an important topic. It's associated with disorders of the platelet, and we'll talk about that. Yeah. Uh, in the future there's another one as well um which other causes would be you know proxismal nocturnal um, hemoglobinuria which is a really important topic because it's associated with other more sinister conditions okay. that's again a topic for the future as well so yep. just again just store those away those terms away because we're going to refer to them in the future all right well what are some of the clinical uh, actually yep. we, we forgot the other type of classification that's do you want to just remind us I what think those are that one to me makes a lot more uh, makes it a lot more easier to remember yeah. isn't it so instead of thinking 
whether if it's hereditary or acquired, we just think about where on earth are these red blood cells being mm. destroyed. So it can be either destroyed in the blood vessels whilst, um, so that's called intravascular hemolysis. Yep. So diseases would be such as G6PD, TTP. That's another topic on its own. DIC, etc. Yeah. So that's those microangiopathic hemolytic anemias. Yeah. But other ones would be either if they're destroyed in the red, uh, so in the vessels. Otherwise, they can actually be, just be destroyed in the reticuloendothelial system, or in other words, the spleen. If they're destroyed in the spleen, that's called an extravascular destruction or hemolysis. And so that includes spherocytosis um, and a lot of other diseases. Mm. I, I like that. I find the other way easier, but mm. I know some people like the other way. Yeah. Really, they're all essentially point to the same thing, and that's hemolysis, right? Okay. Yeah. That's the key point. So um, what if a patient says that they've got hemolysis? Yeah. Or you suspect someone has hemolysis? What would what signs would you be looking for? Guys, this is a pretty generic way of learning it. And I, and I like that because you can apply it to lots of different contexts. Principles, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. learn the basics and then apply it. So clinical signs, you know, yep. if they've got hemolysis, then they probably have, you know, really pale mucous membranes. Mm -hmm. Maybe the conjunctiva isn't as bright depending on how much hemoglobin has been lost. Uh, okay. Yeah. So refer to our talk about hemoglobin and microcytic anemia to understand that component a little bit more. Yep. Because the spleen is involved in maybe removing of some of those um, damaged red blood cells, then you're going to have splenomegaly. Live spleen, eh? yep. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Because you're going to have heaps of bilirubin and um, biliviridin, which then converts to, um, to, to bilirubin, you're going yep. to have potentially pigmented gallstones being formed because yep. you know you're oversaturating the um the gallbladder pathway if yep. you're not sure about gallstones just go back and have a listen to our yep. um, git talks mm -hmm. about gallbladder uh, you can also have in depending on what the cause like in the case of thalassemia which we talked about it can cause bone abnormalities but yep. keep that in mind because it's not that one's not specific to everything mm. the main thing is you're going to have pallor you're going to have jaundice because of all yeah that. you didn't mention jaundice just then yeah yes. jaundice is a huge thing to look out for exactly yeah. jaundice splenomegaly uh, and gallstones so yep. they're the four things that you want to be mindful of mm. can you just tell us what sort of lab values or things or studies that you might okay. come to see um so one thing we could do is have a look at a, a blood film to see what shape the red blood cells are so they can be round called spherocytes or they can be misshapen i forget what's the term is it poikilocytes yeah poikilocytes is yeah. a term and why like, do you think they might be misshapen? Because of possibly a membrane problem. Yeah. Or let's yeah. say it's something the hemoglobin inside is is dis, um, it is not shaped properly or something. Yeah. And also what would happen is that in the spleen, the macrophages will take big bites out oh, of the okay. red blood cells. The red blood cells are semi-functional, so they still yep. go into the circulation, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. But because they've had these big chunks, because the macrophages want to fix the problem, yep. then you might have abnormal sh abnormal shapes as well. So mm. that's another explanation. Yeah. Uh, so once we look at the lab test values, we can see raised bilirubin. So once again, if you break down, uh, if the red blood cells are broken down and then you lose lots of hemoglobin, the hemoglobin becomes bilirubin. Mm -hmm. Listen back to our, um, what would it be, the, the jaundice episode. It was back the in. jaundice episode. Yeah, yeah. so to, to find out why exactly bilirubin is raised. But once you have raised bilirubin, that, that could be a sign of hemolysis. Mm. And then you can have a raised LDH, which yep. stands for lactate dehydrogenase. It's a enzyme that's found in red blood cells. And so if red blood cells are dying and bursting, then that level, you're going to have lots of LDH being released into the 
vessels and that's going to yeah. raise it up isn't it exactly just a word of warning as well ldh is very non-specific right it can be elevated in liver disease can be elevated in a number of conditions mm. just being mindful that it's not specific but if you've got a patient with hemolysis with a raised ldh then it fixes the picture yes is, is there that's else? a good point um and then there's this other important enzyme called haptoglobin and yes. that's going to be low how many do you want to go through what haptoglobin is well um, i've got a very limited understanding of what haptoglobin is so correct me if i'm wrong but i think haptoglobin is a protein that's circulating the blood and what it does is that it mops up the hemoglobin that's released as a consequence of hemo hemolysis yep. to conserve that hemoglobin because heme is a very precious molecule mm -hmm. it's got iron which is involved in um, carrying of uh, you know oxygen around the body yeah but also excessive amounts of hemoglobin can get trapped in the glomerulus and can cause or in the tubular in the renal tubules and can cause renal damage so it's a protective mechanism and it's it's a, it's also helping to prevent too much loss but unfortunately there isn't that much hemoglobin uh, heptoglobin circulating right so that mm. the levels can quickly plunge yeah and that can be a sign of hemolysis if the levels you know, yeah. suddenly plunge is that your understanding yeah, exactly that's it so if we're talking about hemolysis we're only losing red blood cells so the white blood cell and platelet counts often could be expected to be normal in most cases and, yeah um and you see this increase in reticulocytes or reticulocytosis mm. the primitive mature red blood cell so maybe the body's just trying to pump out a lot more to compensate, to compensate. Yeah. yeah so i think that's pretty much most of the findings cool. that you would expect so guys that was like a very so if you learn this then you can apply it to you know generically to most hemolytic conditions right yeah with a few nuances and like thalassemia for example there's slight different things you might see with that mm. but we'll talk about that later okay. let's talk about our first abnormality and um, so we mentioned you know how you can have abnormalities hereditary abnormalities of the membrane. Mm -hmm. The first condition is spherocytosis uh, or hereditary spherocytosis. Can you tell us what, mm. what that is, Andy? So spherocytosis actually describes the appearance of the red blood cell. So if we describe a normal red blood cell, it would be biconcave shape, yeah. isn't it? Unfortunately, a spherocyte from the name is a sphere. So the red blood cells appear completely round rather than having the, the biconcave appearance that yeah. you normally expect. And, and what causes that roundness? So it's a membrane problem. The way I was taught about it was that if you have something that has excess membranes, the red blood cell usually has a bit of leeway, so it has a bit of excess membrane. So that allows the membranes to dimple in and cause the biconcave shape. Mm. Mm, yeah. Eventually, with we'll go through why what exactly goes wrong with the membrane. But something goes wrong with it, and it causes the membrane to lose parts of it called blebbing. So you lose bits of membrane. Eventually, the whole membrane shrinks down in size and gets tighter and tighter until the red blood cell turns into a sphere round shape. Yep. That, so that's my understanding. That's the pathology well. of it. But what exactly goes wrong with the red blood cell membrane? There's a couple of things that can go wrong. And if you guys are a little bit hazy about the structure of red blood cells, we covered it in the earlier uh, episodes about the physiology of red blood cells so yeah. go and maybe have a listen to that but in the red blood cells the reason the membranes are biconcave is that it, the red blood cells have have these um you know important cytoskeleton structures there's a couple of them and and hereditary spherocytos can affect any of these structures okay i'll mention a few just for your knowledge so yeah. um anchorin is one band three is another one alpha and beta spectrum which i think are the really important ones to know are other examples of cytoskeleton components and so if any of these structures are not working then the biconcave structure cannot be maintained so you have these blebbings as you mentioned and then the red blood cells as they go through the spleen are exposed to macrophages
macrophages and the macrophages eat these blebs and mm. eat away at the membranes and eventually like you mentioned they become these you know spheres as opposed uh, to biconcave red blood cells so let's try to quiz the listener right now so yeah. if as Hamid you just mentioned these red blood cells get eaten away in the spleen by the macrophages is this extravascular hemolysis or intravascular hemolysis what do you think I think it's extravascular exactly yeah. it should be and also if this is going to the spleen and this is happening in the spleen then you might expect some splenomegaly as well oh, so yeah. that's how you connect these sort of ideas and pictures you know if it's extravascular it's going through the reticular endothelial system which is your spleen essentially yeah. mm-hmm. and so you might expect increases in spleen size because you know more macrophages are going to be in that organ all right how do you diagnose this disease i must admit i don't know too much about the diagnosis but we'll mention it for completeness i think so i think you use a flow cytometry using the eosin 5 malamide malamide yeah. eosin 5 malamide it's a mouthful. EMA. just reading this off from a textbook i'm not too familiar with the exact same process. yeah i don't know too much about yeah. the, the the concepts and i don't think we should because that's more getting into specialist territory especially when you talk about flow cytometry but if the dear listener if you're actually an expert in this i'd, I'd like to find out so yeah send us an email use the feedback button on the website <laughs> we, we check that religiously all right do you treat this condition like do you I, need to i would think you would right i i think often it's, it's a mild mild condition right okay but if it's causing severe splenomegaly then remove the spleen because that is obviously one of the cause because the macrophages are eating away in the spleen because you're going to have lots of red blood cells being produced to replace those damaged red blood cells you need to supplement with folate d12 not so much because you have a, such a more such a larger store but yeah. folate because it's a smaller store you need to replace it all the time otherwise yeah. these patients will not only have spherocytosis they'll also develop um, macrocytic anemia yeah. so that's really important okay. but I don't think you need to actively treat unless they're you know, severely symptomatic oh, okay I got it yeah. I think that's it for spherocytosis hereditary spherocytosis do you want to add anything else no there's other mutation problems that can that are not called spherocytosis but hereditary elliptocytosis stomacytosis mm. but i don't think we'll go through no i mean they those. affect different populations around the world but yep. the key the more, most common one is hereditary spherocytosis and it's good to know about that one it's okay. mentioned it's actually been mentioned a few times in our lectures so it's really important to know about it let's talk about some of those enzymatic conditions there's two specific ones that i think are really important the most popular one or the most common one would be G6PD. That's the one. Do you want to just tell us what that is? Actually, I have G6PD. <laughs> do you? I do, I do. Um, You're a living case of it. Yes, that was our very first PBL, and I was like, that's me! Yeah, yeah. Okay, anyways, with G6PD... I've got a surprise when, when we come to the thalassemia talk. Oh, do you? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I... Okay. <laughs> Between us, we've got all the hematology conditions. Collecting diseases one at a time. Okay. All right. Okay, so with G6... G6PD is an enzyme and so the disease is called g6pd deficiency yeah right and it's a sex-linked recessive disease yes yeah so what g6pd does is that the enzyme is responsible to produce this thing called nadph Mm. and what nadph does is that it resets glutathione back into its original form and what glutathione does is protect the red blood cell from oxidation damage So essentially, if you don't have G6PD, you don't have the resetting uh, uh, component to glutathione, and so red blood cells are more easily able yeah. to be degraded so you're not actually producing as much glutathione as, as necessary for the you know healthy functioning yeah so what happens when you know you suddenly get exposed to antioxidants yep. oxidizing agents not oh, antioxidants yeah if you get exposed to oxidizing agents then the person if they don't have a sufficient amount of g6pd mm. then the red blood cells will die hemolyze and then you get all the clinical symptoms yeah, yeah. and your hemoglobin would be reduced uh, and 
it would turn into meth meth hemoglobin, which is a non-functioning hemoglobin subtype. And eventually, because of that, the red blood cells also die and and lose their function. Okay. Is it is it common? I'm I'm assuming it's probably the the more common common form of it. Mm. So it's probably important for us to know some of the clinical features then. Um, So do patients like do you have any symptoms? Not until I get exposed to any oxidizing agents and. Also, that being said, depending on your deficiency level, some people are completely asymptomatic, yeah. such as myself. I never had any problems with it, yeah. but apparently it's just tested up that I, I've got this deficiency. Whereas other people, once even just a little bit of a trigger can cause mass hemolysis. Yeah. And what would be some of those triggers? So an oxidizing agent would be such as fava beam. So it's also called the favism. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's more of the Mediterranean uh, subtype, I think. And then there's also other drugs as well. I think NSAIDs are one of them that actually triggers it yeah like and also anti-malaria anti- not not very oh, common but some of the anti-malaria that's can, right can do that as well yeah i think stress and uh, area um times of you know low oxygen so when you're exercising really heavily that mm. might trigger as well and so what happens you'll use up your g6pd resource pretty quickly and then the red blood cells will get uh, oxidative damage to it and then you'll get hemolytic anemia yeah so if the red blood cells die in the vessels then g6pd should be an intravascular damage yeah uh, and but often if this yeah. is one of those tricky ones where it could potentially be a mixed picture where the spleen might also be involved in removal of it oh. so you get splenomegaly as well but typically it's intravascular because that's where the destruction occurs Mm. but the spleen can also mop up some of the damaged red blood cells so it's a bit of a mixed one and so under a a microscope you tend to see these really specific features with g6dp deficiency you can like i said the spleen's involved and the macrophages can take big bites out of the red blood cells so surprise surprise you form bite cells or blister cells um, it kind of looks it, like like one of those cartoons where homer simpson bites a don't bite yeah a donut yeah just... exactly and i'm not sure whether another name for it is called hat cells have you heard of that or is that something else hat cells i think that's the more um schistocytes that... actually yes you're right we'll, we'll talk about schistocytes at another time but yeah, yeah, yeah you're right so ignore that that's bite cells bite, bite cells is just yeah. the point you need to remember yeah all right is there anything else that we need to add um, i mean uh how do you diagnose it we haven't mentioned about diagnosis you can do enzyme assays to test whether the person has the enzyme or not there's screening tests for newborns i believe yeah i think that's really and then you look at the blood film for bite cells as well during a crisis yeah that's my understanding i mean it's not a very complicated i mean it's obviously complicated but we'll keep it simple yeah the whole point is this enzyme's not working so you're going to get oxidative damage to the red blood cells and the spleen may be involved in removal Mm -hmm. and then you form these bite cells let's finish off Mm-hmm. Our, our conversation on, on the basic hemolytic uh, anemias by talking about pyruvate kinase as well because that's another enzyme problem do you yep. want to just tell us about that pyruvate kinase deficiency is a autosomal recessive disease and so if you don't have enough pyruvate kinase it's it's a key enzyme in the um, atp genesis yes gen- generation and so you have to think back to your biochemistry days if you don't have pyruvate kinase you don't have enough atp and that can cause deficiency of atp can cause downstream effects such as membrane swelling and rigidity and one way you can think of it is just that atp is such an important energy resource for the body to for the cells themselves to maintain their homeostasis and if you don't have atp then the sodium potassium pumps don't work so the water could start so the cell essentially could start swelling up and you know i guess that because you've disrupted the electrolyte balance right exactly so the water diffusion is then disrupted as well um so it's not very complicated it's just those pumps are not working and then you have disruption in water Mm. movement 
it. Are there any sort of clinical features worth noting? So once taking a stab at this entire series, so I mean today's episode is going to cause hemolytic uh, anemia and uh, with the with the red blood cell death can lead to jaundice. It it also gets trapped in the spleen, spleen system, mm-hmm. so it's in, it's possibly a extravascular hemolytic disease. And with the increased release of the bilirubin can cause jaundice as well as pigmented gallstones. That's right. Let's finish off our talk on the basics of hemolytic anemia by talking about the autoimmune hemolytic anemia. We have to mention it because it's been mentioned a couple of times in our lectures, but we're not going to focus too much on it because it wasn't a huge focus. So autoimmune hemolytic anemia or abbreviated AIHA. I don't know if anybody calls it. IHA. So there's two types, Hamlet. What would they be? This was so confusing because they, you know, these you know amazing hematologists would come, lecture us, mention all these, you know, terms, and then I'm just there confused and lost and I'm not sure what's going on. Yep. So there's two types. It's okay. often called a warm. Yep. I've struggled with pronouncing that word. Or a cold. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe for the sake of clarity, you can yep. explain what the worm or the warm <laughs> so um, example is. It's not the squiggly type. It's the, no. the hot temperature type. The hot temperature one. Yeah. So what causes that? So, um, so... I don't really fully understand the exact pathology of it, but all I'm um, going to learn out of this is that with IHA, sorry, so the autoimmune hemolytic anemia, with the warm type especially, I'm associating it with IgG. Yeah, with the, um, the, the warm type. Whereas so the, around 37 degrees is, yep. I think. So that would be the definition of around about warm i guess so what it will do is that igg will um, attach onto the red blood cell and then when the red blood cell passes through the spleen the macrophages will pick up on that and go oh this thing is tagged so it will start to eat away at the membrane eventually it's similarly to spherocytosis where membrane is lost the macrophages will keep on eating away at the membrane until you get spherocytes around red blood cells and eventually also you'll lose these red blood cells so that's that's hemolytic anemia right there um whereas the cold one is associated with igm isn't it Hamish? yeah yeah, so around four to four degrees to twenty-one degrees. So if these patients live in a really cold climate, these patients can suddenly develop hemolytic anemia. So so we're currently talking in Canberra, and the temperature is dropping yeah. daily. So it's getting really cold. To be honest, I would think twenty-one degrees is a warm day in Canberra, but that's that's that, that's pretty much summer <laughs> by okay. by Canberra standards. No, but but, uh, but not by Botswana standards, which is where um, Gautam's from. But yeah, so in in these cold temperatures, these patients can develop hemolysis as yeah. a result of IgM uh, complement activating pathways. And so you're going to get red blood cell destruction. So often what would happen with these patients from what was told to us in the lectures is that either they move to a higher temperature climate, so they might go further north towards the equator, or during winter they really keep warm. So minimizing exposure of the skin, because that's the first point of cold to cold temperature. It essentially happens in the areas where you're exposed to the cold, isn't it? So the hands or the nose or the face. Exactly. So they might get, you know, the earlobes might start bruising and things as a result of hemolysis. Mm. I think we'll leave it at that. So the point to take home from this autoimmune hemolytic anemia is that you can have two types um, warm and, and cold yeah and warm is called by caused by IgG and yeah. cold is caused by IgM if you guys know a good mnemonic to memorize this please mm. let us know yeah because I'm struggling to remember all, all the various um, causes I think we'll leave it at that is there we'll anything else you want to add no I think autolytic is a pretty cool term it's pretty cool I can't <laughs> pronounce it though I'm, yeah. I'm having a um, difficult day today yeah okay. thanks for listening in guys and um, for our next episode we're planning to talk about thalassemia and sickle cell disease we're really excited because it's such a challenging but also really interesting topic um, so yeah um, stay tuned for that for our next episode thank you for listening
Thank you for listening to our Common Rounds podcast. You can find all of our episodes, notes, elective experiences, and much more content on our website. So come visit us at thecommonrounds.wordpress.com. And see you next time.